catch my breath here. I think that uh, last week Melissa mentioned that I've been out of town. It's great to be home. I know some of you had no idea I was out of town, but I'm saying it anyway. It's great to be home. Really nice to be No, that's all right. Gets everybody's attention, which I appreciate. Thank you, Prentice. Um, I went to uh, South America, and it was a wonderful invitation. I was very grateful to be invited down to uh, that location to speak to the South American missionaries that are part of our denominational tradition, along with some other speakers. There was some training and fellowship, a lot of reasons behind it. Um, It was a real joy to be among that group. I find myself, anytime I walk away from a group like that, amazed at the kind of people that God calls into that kind of work. Incredible hearts, incredible vision, dedication, commitment. Just a real joy to be with them. Uh, One of the interesting pieces about it was to see that in this group of about 60 missionaries and their family members, there were probably only about 12 that were from the United States. All of the others were missionaries from various South American countries to other South American countries, which was fantastic. So people from um, Ecuador who were missionaries to Argentina and people from Brazil who were missionaries to Paraguay, people from Mexico who were missionaries down to Chile. It was wonderful just to see the ways in which God is working around the globe. I also got to hear a number of their stories, and one of the stories was great in that it had a connection to our congregation here, and that caught my attention, of course. I was in conversation with a gentleman by the name of Reverend Rich, and he has been a missionary to Ecuador for about 30 years. And he told me that he also grew up on a mission field because his parents were missionaries, and for a good portion of their journey, they were missionaries to Haiti. And his father, Reverend Rich, had um, gone down to Haiti to partner up with the gentleman who I believe opened up that field for our faith tradition here, um, Paul Oriala. The great piece of that storyline is that Paul Oriala is part of our congregation, our family, came out of this place, considered this his church home. And as he was telling me the story of the work in Haiti and the years and work that those families had given to that place, he conveyed that the structure and work that they put in place has now resulted in over 100,000 Nazarene Christians in Haiti at this time working alongside of other wonderful Christian churches and organizations to try and get the good news out and to make a difference in that country. And out of that work that was taking place there, there are somewhere in the neighborhood, maybe a little bit more than 30,000 Haitians that are part of Haitian congregations all along the east coast of our country, stretching from Miami up to Montreal. Um, as an outpouring of the work that, at least in a small way, connects to a church like ours that's a sending church that believes deeply in missions and um, 
makes our efforts and our stewardship seen in that way. So it was fun to be there. It was fun to represent you. It was fun to share some of the stories of our place here as they were sharing their stories as well. The passage we're looking at this morning is right in the middle of Mark chapter 6. We started, as you heard, read in that great dramatic uh, reading, um, kind of in the middle of a story. Verse 30 says that the apostles returned to Jesus and began to share all of the things that they had done. But we don't get the beginning of the story in that passage. It's in the same chapter. It comes earlier in the chapter. It starts in Matthew chapter 6, really in verse 7. Verse 6 says that Jesus was going throughout the towns and teaching. In verse 7, it says that he called the disciples to him and he began to send them out two by two to various towns. And he gave them instructions as he sent them out, and the instructions were this. Don't take anything with you except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. You can wear sandals, but no extra shirt. And when you go to a town and the house that you go to, stay in that house until you leave the town. And if by chance you go to a town where they don't receive you or they don't listen to what you have to say, when you leave that town, shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. And then it says that they went out and they preached the message of repentance. They cast out evil spirits because Jesus had empowered them to do that. They anointed many with oil healing the sick. And that was their experience. It's a story that is separated by the really odd portion that Melissa tackled last week. For those of you that weren't here, it's the story of the beheading of John the Baptist. And Melissa's work at trying to identify in this entire narrative, verses, or chapters 5, 6, and 7, the highlight reel, the storyline of Jesus, and comparing that to Herod's life. And raising the question, where are we like Herod? And what about the call to be like Jesus? Herod's use of power. Herod's use of resources for his own purposes and his own gain. Herod's paranoia. Herod being drawn to all of those things that serve Herod in contrast to Jesus. Jesus who gives power away. Jesus who looks for the best in others. Jesus who finds his purpose in doing the will of the Father who's in heaven. And where is it that we might be able to find ourselves in that story? How might we be like Herod and what happens when we find ourselves very much like the attributes that Herod displays? So this passage that we're looking at gets split by that storyline in a, a great setup for comparing those two very different approaches to our life's journey. 
As I was spending some time in this passage, I was taken with something that seemed odd to me. It's in the portion that is verses 30 through 33. I'm a little surprised by Jesus' response. His response isn't what I expect. I've read past it many times, but I've never paused long enough to notice that he seems to pay no attention to the wonderful things that the disciples did. They did what Jesus asked them to do. When they came back and told the stories about it, it was as if it just went right past Jesus. His response when they told them was that he noticed that all of the people were coming and going, so much so that they didn't get a chance to eat. And he said, so why don't you come away with me to a quiet place and rest? And so they went on a boat and went to a solitary place. I don't think that would have been my response. If I had sent a group of people away, given them power, and the things that they did were pretty amazing, they'd come back, I'd say, yeah, why don't we start telling those stories? And if others gather around, all the better. This is fantastic. And let's continue the storytelling tonight around the campfire. This is marvelous. Let's hear all about it. I don't know if it's Mark, the author, and I might be making a bigger deal of it than I should, but... Jesus doesn't dwell on it at all. In fact, in his response, he doesn't even mention what they did. So it made me pursue it a little bit more and go back and look at how Jesus sent them out. He sent them out with very specific instructions. He sent them out with instructions to take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money for their belts. You can wear traveling sandals, but no extra shirt. I don't know for absolute certainty that this was Jesus' intent, but it sure seems to me that he is peeling away from them all of those things on which they might be dependent other than God's provision. In fact, even more so, it seems to me, pulling away or peeling away the things from their life in which they might find their identity. No money for their belt, taking away any socioeconomic status they might have, sending them to a town where they likely knew no one. They might know a family member in another town. That certainly is a possibility. But going to a place where they had no clout, no political leverage, no way by which to um, manipulate or work a particular situation. They were stripped of other identifying markers, no extra shirts in which to change, no food for provisions. The various ways by which people might identify themselves and began to pull those things away from them. It seems as if Jesus is working on their identity, who they are, which then makes perfect sense of the verses in 30 through 33 where they come back having experienced a whole lot of success. 
And it says there are a lot of people coming and going. It's so easy for us, once we've had some of our, some of the ways in which we claim our identity taken away from us, if we then have success in another area, we begin to claim our identity in that success. Look at what was accomplished. Oh, this is me. This is the new me. Jesus' response, uh, hold on. Why don't we go off to a quiet place? Think about this. Because your success is not your identity. You don't find who you are in what you just did. I, I think Melissa conveyed to you that the beginning of my trip didn't go very well. It was at least uncomfortable. Um, my day of departure started as I packed up my bag, getting ready to head down to Argentina. And it was an all-night flight, and so I dressed in accordance with that. I wore baggy clothes, comfortable shoes, just all the things that will make trying to sleep on a plane a little bit easier. I, after the bag was packed, I just the baggy pair of blue jeans. It was a, a nice shirt, but it was a big baggy shirt. Right before we left, or shortly before we left for the airport, I went out in the backyard to um, take care of some things that I had to do before we left. And in the process, I stepped in something that I wish I hadn't stepped in. And, and it's really hard to clean tennis shoes of that when you, but those were the shoes that I wanted to wear. So that was the way my trip actually began, was cleaning my shoes before I ever got in the car to make my way to the airport. And I get to the airport, and there was something wrong with my visa, not my passport. It was something on my visa receipt that uh, didn't quite match what the ticket agent needed. And so it was a somewhat laborious process, and I didn't have a whole lot of time. I ended up going through security multiple times, and paying an extra fee for just to get into a place that had a printer to reprint this thing. And when all of that ended, I ended up at the gate at about 20, 25 minutes before the flight was to leave, which is not horrific. It was just a little unsettling. That's all. I make my connection in Dallas. I fly through the night and get to Buenos Aires. I got there. My luggage didn't get there. So I had a, 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 a pillow, a book, I think that was it. And no bag. And, of course, the wonderful baggy outfit that I had worn to sleep through the night on the plane. So I filed the paperwork, and we went to find, I went to find the transportation to get to the place where I was that night. Strange sequence of events that it just didn't allow me to get to a place where I could purchase any other clothing to help get through um, what was taking place. The second day awkward, a little uncomfortable. The third day, really inconvenient. The fourth day, just gross. I, <laughs> just not going well. I um, finally got to the point the evening of the third day after having tried to go into town to get some things, but um, the holiday Independence Day of Argentina was that day, so nearly everything was closed. So I, I go to the front desk and I say, would you have anything to help me, like a shaving kit, toothbrush, anything? They gave me what they had, so 
I have, in the course of time, attempted to wash some items out in the sink or in the shower, hang them to dry, but I'm in the rainforest. So even though it's winter, the temperature's in the 60s, the humidity is in the 90s, so nothing dries, ever. And putting on damp items is just incredibly uncomfortable. But there's no other choice. And the morning of the fourth day was my first morning to speak. So I pulled out the little kit that they had given me the night before, and I didn't think ahead that it was not my typical shaving cream, and it was a brand new blade. Yeah, thanks. It, the gouges in my chin and the fact that no bleeding would stop. It was like I was on blood thinner, and I'm just all over trying to, knowing that it just in a very brief time, I'm going to be standing up before a group of people with either a Kleenex all over my chin, held there, or it was terrible, just terrible. To make matters worse, to top off the morning, in the restroom was a bidet, and I know that already that's more information than you need to know. I realize that. But this was like the height of the humiliation of this morning. I'm not naive. I know the function, how they work, all of that. I, I just noticed in being there that the little lever faucet at the back was very unusual. And I'm not sure why that morning it particularly caught my attention. But I leaned over just to move that lever because it was rather unusual and I don't know if it was like on super jet power thing but it sprayed all of the walls and it would have hit the ceiling had my face not been in the way <laughs> so I make my way downstairs to speak in rather damp garments with a chin that was hacked to shreds, a damp scalp, and my trusty baggy blue jeans and shirt. It was terrible. Now, I know Melissa last week said that I get all of the softball kind of passages of Scripture. She gets the difficult ones, like John the Baptist beheading. But it felt like God was making me actually live the scripture that we're looking at, where I'm in this country with no money to purchase things, with no extra shirt. I have sandals, though they're kind of a mess, these shoes that I'm wearing, and everything else has gone wrong, having been stripped of all of those things that help me to pretend that I have a certain persona because I didn't have it that particular Thursday morning. I've heard no stories of Melissa ever being thrown in prison, being threatened with beheading, or anything like that. So I completely reject the notion of softball pitches for this particular passage. It is, for me, an interesting journey, as I had been studying this passage, and to realize the many ways in which I find myself with a particular identity. An identity that is founded less in 
who God has created me to be, and more in what I think about myself or what I have accepted as culture's definition of who I am. And that happens all the time. I surrender my notion of my identity to the kind of standards, parameters that the people around me or the culture in which I live hand to me. And I see myself through that lens all of the time. It seems to me that it is at least legitimate to say that Jesus cares as much, if not more, about this inner journey of the disciples as he cares about what the disciples are going to do in the towns where they're headed. I believe Jesus cared about both, but it seems to me that Jesus is about helping the disciples to understand their true identity. They're called to be healing agents in the towns where Jesus sends them. But it really is impossible to be a healing agent if you've not first experienced the healing Christ in your own life. And I can't receive the healing Christ in my life until I begin to peel away the persona that I project, the ways in which I find my identity in everything but Christ which calls for an honesty and an authenticity. It calls me to confession. It's interesting in our country this last month, the huge big stories that have dominated so many of the news cycles. Situations that have either exposed divisions within our society and culture, or if not only exposed, but maybe exacerbated some of those divisions. The feeling that maybe many of us have, I know I sometimes do, how do I step into that? What do I do? What do I say? Because it feels like there's a call to do something and take action, voice an opinion, Take a side. It is a temptation to step into a conversation when I don't even know my own identity. It is a temptation to step into a conversation and never own up to the fact that what is displayed on a large societal scale is really a reflection of what goes on in our individual lives, an individual scale. We're back to the places where I am so much like Herod. But I don't typically find myself confronting my own inner heart journey in these moments having felt like I've already arrived, that I know all of these things, I step very quickly into the debate or into the action. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't step in and do something. That's not what I'm saying at all. 
But it seems to me if Jesus is calling this passage and other places in the New Testament, the, the consistency through Scripture is going to have an effect on my life at all. It must first call me to be honest about my own journey. How am I complicit in what I see in this new cycle? How has my life's journey participated in some fashion? Or if that's too uncomfortable or too distant of a thought, then simply to ask the question, what in my life, if not checked, would have resulted in me being the person that's on the news tonight? Apart from God's grace, not really my sheer discipline, but apart from God's work in my life, what part of me would have resulted in my life being the headline for the next five news cycles? If I can't honestly look at myself that way, then I don't know that my voice into my culture is going to have a healing effect. I think it will simply add to the division will add to the strife. But if I've been touched by Christ's healing touch, I step into those moments in a completely different way because my identity is not found in all of these other trappings or in my success in other moments. My identity is found in the Christ who saves and heals me. We are, we are and we have all that we need to perfectly fulfill what God has called us to do. We're perfectly designed for it. Now, I'm not perfectly designed to do what God has called you to do. I'm not perfectly designed to do what my parents have done. But God has given me all that I need to perfectly live out God's image stamped on me. I'm not saying that it's easy to move in that direction. I love love the glorious moments when after confession, receiving God's forgiveness and feeling like God's grace has just washed over me, It's so invigorating, it gives you a taste that tastes like heaven. It's that taste that compels us often to move in toward the future. But to keep looking toward that inward journey, saying, God, help me to move closer to the image you've stamped within me, it takes work. And sometimes when we've stopped working at that journey and we coast for a little bit, Others who observe are observing that in coasting, the stream is starting to move us backwards. We have to, with great intention, continue to move forward in this journey. And it doesn't matter our age. It doesn't matter how long we've been on a journey of faith, 50 years or five hours. It may be that this morning is the morning where One of you says, this is the morning I'd like to try this journey of faith. 
This is the morning where I really know that all of the other things in which I have tried to find my identity have fallen short. I long to be a healing agent where I live. This morning I want to be one of those who is healed by Jesus. I have one other time read this wonderful little book. Some of you know it, some of you have never heard of it. Eric Carle's The Quiet Cricket. It goes like this. One warm day from a tiny egg, a little cricket was born. Welcome, chirped the big cricket, rubbing his wings together. The little cricket wanted to answer, so he rubbed his wings together, but nothing happened, not a sound. Good morning, whizzed a locust, making locust whizzing sounds. The little cricket wanted to answer, so he rubbed his wings together, but nothing happened, not a sound. Same thing happened with the praying mantis who whispered hello as he rubbed his gargantuan legs together. The little cricket wanted to answer, so he rubbed his wings together, but nothing happened, not a sound. Good day, crunched a little worm as he worked his way through the apple. The little cricket wanted to answer, so he rubbed his wings together, but nothing happened, not a sound. High bubbled a spittle bug slurping in a sea of froth. The little cricket wanted to answer, so he rubbed his wings together but not a sound. How are you, hummed a bumblebee? The little cricket wanted to answer, so he rubbed his wings together, but nothing happened, not a sound. As the day wore on, came across a dragonfly in the evening who whirred a good evening to him. The little cricket wanted to answer, so he rubbed his wings together, but nothing happened, not a sound. Good night, buzzed the mosquitoes. Wanting to respond in some way, the little cricket rubbed his wings together, but nothing happened, not a sound. The luna moth sailed quietly through the night, and the cricket enjoyed the stillness. As the luna moth disappeared silently into the distance, the cricket saw another cricket. She, too, was a very quiet cricket. Then he rubbed his wings together one more time. And this time, he chirped the most beautiful sound she had ever heard. The little cricket trying to find his identity. He can't be a luna moth. He can't be a bee. He can't even be the big cricket. But when he finally finds his identity, he chirps the most perfect sound. How about your identity this morning? Where do you try and find it? It is stamped on you the image of God perfectly designed to do what God has designed you to do. But it requires that we pull away the layers 
of dependence. Thinking that our identity is wrapped up in our position, our place, our cultural success, our work success. And Jesus says to the disciples, let's go away to a quiet place. We fill our lives with a whole lot of noise. Sometimes it is just an incredible cover for how inadequate our identity really feels. But in that quiet place, in that solitary place, the Spirit of Christ will help you to begin to see who you really are. God's. And the image of God stamped on you. The call to be a healing agent in our world, but first before that's even possible, we've got to be healed ourselves. So that when the next news cycle rolls around, we might have found within ourselves the Christ who lives within. Father, this morning, forgive us for the many times we have tried to be something we're not. Forgive us for the many times we have found our identity in everything but you. Forgive us, Lord, for trusting our own resources. Father, this is sometimes a frightening journey to take, but pull back the curtain. Give us the courage to honestly look at ourselves. To know that inside of us there is both joy and anger. There is both happiness and sorrow. There is inside of us a a desire to be selfless, and yet this constant pull to be self-serving with all of our resources. There is within us a Herod that rises up. And Lord, you've not called us to just simply verbally deny that, but you've invited us to identify it and allow your redemptive character to take those characteristics and use them for your agenda, for the kingdom's work. So give us courage this morning to be honest. Send us inward so that we might be prepared to go outward. Heal us that we might be healers ourselves. As we lift up our praises, as we offer our offerings, 
as we take a few moments to listen to you. If it requires us, Lord, sometime later today to find a quiet, quiet, quiet place, help us to do that. If it calls us this week into some tough self-work, move us in that direction. Father, we don't want to be stagnant. There's much to be done. But Lord, let it begin with your healing spirit in us. Thank you, Father. Amen.